This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Hello, and welcome to Bodies of Horror, the podcast where we look at all of our favorite horror films from the classic the camp, to the cringe, through the lens of disability. My name is Nicole, I'm your host, and I am thrilled to have you here. That's right, y'all. After a brief little break, we are back, feeling refreshed, rejuvenated, and re-energized. And what is waiting for us on the examination table upon our return? Georges Franjou's 1960 French horror classic Eyes Without a Face, or Les You Sans Visage. An edited and dubbed version of the film was released in the United States with a rather nonsensical title of The Horror Chamber of Dr. Faustus in 1962. Now, a little bit of a background on the production of this movie before we really get into the plot. It is based on Jean Redon's book of the same title. Producer Jules Bracon got the rights to the book and approached Franjou to direct. At this time, Franjou, a co-founder of Cinémathèque Française, had just started work on his first non-documentary film and was excited at the opportunity to contribute to the genre. Now, adapting Redon's book meant that Franjou had to work to appease European censors. He had to limit blood and gore to appease French censors, leave out the depictions of animal cruelty for the English censors, and leave out the mad scientist or doctor character to appease German censors. As these are really essential elements and really important to the story and its impact, the screenwriters were able to expertly include these elements by striking a tone that wouldn't bring the censors scrutiny. And one way that they pulled this off was by shifting the focus of the story to Christiane. Now, I found these production details interesting, and it showed the teamwork and effort that went into making the film a really incredible one. Now... Let's start talking about the plot, the characters, and the disability themes. Depuis le temps que je te connais, je lis sur ton visage. Dis-moi la vérité. Les gens n'approfondiront pas. Ils ne chercheront pas à savoir ce qui se passe ici, surtout. Mais que se passe-t-il dans cette mystérieuse ville-là
Allô, inspecteur Parot Je vous remercie de nous avoir avertis. Pourquoi les miroirs de cette étrange demeure sont-ils masqués de noir Que cherche-t-elle Le reflet de ses yeux, de son visage. Edna, elle s'est échappée. J'ai rendez-vous avec une amie. Je vous dirai demain. Demain. Il sera trop tard, mon petit. Edith Scobb, dont vous connaîtrez enfin le visage en venant voir notre prochain spectacle, Les yeux sans visage. Ways we are going to kick things off with the plot synopsis from our good friend Wikipedia. At night, just outside Paris, a woman drives along a riverbank and dumps a corpse in the river. After the body is recovered, Dr. Genesier identifies the remains as those of his missing daughter, Christiane, whose face was horribly disfigured in an automobile accident that occurred before her disappearance, for which he is responsible. Dr. Genesier lives in a large mansion, which is adjacent to his clinic, with numerous caged German shepherds and other large dogs. Following Christiane's funeral, Dr. Genesier and his assistant Louise, the woman who had disposed of the dead body earlier, return home where the real Christiane is hidden, and it is explained that Louise is deathlessly loyal to Genesee because he repaired her own badly damaged face, leaving only a barely noticeable scar she covers with a pearl choker. The body belonged to a young woman who died following Genesee's unsuccessful attempt to graft her face onto his daughters. Genesee promises to restore Christian's face and insists that she wear a mask to cover her disfigurement. After her father leaves the room, Christiane calls her fiancé Jacques, who works with Dr. Genesier at the clinic, but hangs up without saying a word. Louise lures a young Swiss girl named Edna to Genesier's home. Genesier chloroforms Edna and takes her into a secret laboratory. 
Christian secretly watches her father and Louise carry Edna to the lab and then goes to tenderly caress the dogs her father keeps caged, who eagerly accept her love and are unaffected by her appearance. Dr. Genesier performs heterograft surgery, removing Edna's face. The doctor successfully grafts the skin onto his daughter's face and holds the heavily bandaged and faceless Edna against her will. Edna escapes and falls to her death from an upstairs window. After disposing of Edna's corpse, Genesier notices flaws on Christiane's face. Her face grows worse within days. The new tissue is being rejected and she must resort to wearing her mask again. Christiane again phones Jacques and this time says his name, but the phone call is interrupted by Louise. Jacques reports the call to the police who have been investigating the disappearance of several young women with blue eyes and similar facial characteristics. The police have gained a lead concerning a woman who wears a pearl choker, whom Jacques recognizes as Louise. Inspector Perrault, an officer investigating Edna's disappearance, hires a young woman named Paulette, recently arrested for shoplifting, to help investigate by checking herself into Genesia's clinic. After being declared healthy, Paulette leaves for Paris and is promptly picked up by Louise, who delivers her to Genesia. Genesia is about to begin surgery on Paulette when Louise informs him that the police want to see him. While the doctor talks uh, with the police, Christiane, who has long been disenchanted with her father's experiments, while slowly losing her sanity from guilt and isolation, frees Paulette and murders Louise by stabbing her in the neck. She also frees the dogs and doves that her father uses for experiments. Genesia dismisses the police, who readily accept his explanations, and returns to his lab, where an abandoned German shepherd he had only recently obtained for his experiments and attacks him, inciting the other dogs to follow suit. Maddened by pain and confinement, they maul him to death, disfiguring his face in the process. Christiane, unmoved by her father's death, walks slowly into the woods outside Genesia's home with one of the free doves in her hand. I am very sorry for probably the names that I uh, kind of butchered, pun intended there. Um, French is not my native tongue, so uh, I may just call Genesia Dr. G at points just because I don't want to trip over it and and kind of come off even more foolish there. So, um, yes, this film is really, really incredible, and I think kind of a sleeper. Not a lot of folks uh, talk about this one. I've seen it come up more and more in discussion, which is really, really exciting. And I think some of that may be that it's been fairly regularly available on streaming. I know that it's been available on HBO Max for quite some time. So if you happen to have that and are looking for something to watch, I definitely uh, recommend giving this one a go. You know, uh, a, a cool thing as I was uh, reading about the film and listening to a couple of podcasts that really stood out to me. But let's talk a little bit about the disability elements because I think 
there's some really, really interesting things. Now, like I just said, I had been listening to a couple of podcasts uh, about the film. There's not a whole ton out there. Uh, I don't think it's been covered um, too extensively, but the uh, episodes that I really focused in on were one by Faculty of Horror and one by The Evolution of Horror. I really like these podcasts because they really do go into a lot of background and, and meet in that way with these films. And so I know that I mentioned at least Faculty of Horror uh, a couple of times here on the pod. I, I'm a really big fan of it. And I was really intrigued with a lot of the discussion. And honestly, it's one of the things that uh, drew me to thinking, out, yeah, this is the time to kind of cover it. Now, the episode came out in 2019, so not super recent, but um, in, you know, just going back and every now and then, if there isn't something super new, uh, if I've kind of cleared the decks, if you will, in that way, I'll go back and say, you know, I've, I've been listening to this podcast for a while. Is there like a back episode that I haven't gotten to or that would be really interesting to, uh, to listen in on? And this was one of them. Uh, so I, I listened and really, really, really loved the discussion. So a lot of it is actually kind of, uh, I, I guess a lot of my initial thoughts about the disability element kind of stem from a few things that were mentioned in their episode. So you have a film here that I think is, you know, talking a lot about image and perceptions of how we view ourselves, uh, the mirrors in uh, the mansion that Genesee and Christian live in, and I think Louise lives there too, maybe, with them, not for sure, but you know, all the mirrors have been covered, but she talks about how she can still see herself. And, you know, a lot of the discussion in the Faculty of Horror podcast was talking about, you know, especially with women, you know, these issues of image and how image is really dictated by kind of a patriarchal viewpoint that we view ourselves often the way that a male influenced society does. And this is really, I think, a, a pertinent theme here, but I, I want to kind of then sp spin the disability element here. When we first meet Christiane, she has been given her obituary and Louise is instructing her to, you know, make sure that she's wearing her mask. And it's almost kind of this idea of Christian as a person no longer existing. She is effectively dead and her features, her uniqueness the thing that makes Christian Christian is being covered up with a mask because Louise 
and Dr. G find her appearance upsetting, troubling, disturbing. And we never really get a peek of that. And we never get a sense of who she was before the accident, what she looked like. So it's just a really kind of interesting moment of erasing a person's being in kind of a, a, a fully realized way. Basically, she's just there to exist as a product of her father and her father's work. And the only reason for this is because her face isn't perfect. It's scarred. She was in an accident. So it is better to not exist than to exist as a scarred individual. And now obviously this element speaks to me as someone with a physical disability. I have a pretty prominent scar on my chest that goes up to uh, almost the uh, bottom of my throat. So unless I'm wearing a turtleneck, you are probably going to see a little bit of the scar. And I have been out shopping for clothes and a person is helping me. And as I'm trying maybe something on, they'll say, oh, well, do you want something else that will cover, you know, your scar? And no, I don't. That would be, you know, exhausting if, if that had to be kind of the main criteria because it's just not going to be that easy. This isn't to um, disparage or kind of cast any shame on anyone who, you know, wants to cover a scar or a mark. Um, that's not at all the kind of point I think, I, I hope that I'm, I'm making here. What, what I'm just trying to say is that it's, this film, and with the character of Christiane, she clearly doesn't want to wear the mask. And she, as we see throughout the film, becomes kind of more and more exhausted and, I guess, fed up with being, you know, basically treated the same as her father's animals, kind of something to be experimented on. And that's why I say that Christiane is really just a product to him of himself and, and his work. It's not about improving her quality of life. Certainly there is quality of life component in, you know, individuals with visible scars, all of those things do perhaps encounter some difficulties of, you know, being turned down for jobs. Um, you know, there's a whole gamut, I think, of challenges that can come with that. And that can speak certainly to a quality of life. It is a somewhat difficult thing to parse out, but it all boils down to Christian really having no agency and no autonomy 
to a really specific point. In listening to the Faculty of Horror podcast, they chat a lot about, you know, uh, patriarchy and kind of this history of ownership of women by men and how that still is kind of played on in society today in, I think, some pretty obvious ways. But, you know, they mention just, you know, the custom of a man asking uh, a woman's father for her hand in marriage and, you know, the giving away of the bride by the father uh, to the groom at the wedding and how this is really about ownership. Dr. G, as a central male in the car- in, in the story, has ownership of not just Christiane, but also Louise. She's indebted to him for her corrective cosmetic surgery that was successful. And so she has, you know, become his right-hand woman and does essentially the dirty work of luring the women and disposing of them with uh, Dr. G being fairly hands-off outside of, you know, the the nitty-gritty of the surgeries and all of that. So just something that I found really interesting. Now, there's obviously, uh, going back to, I think, something I touched on a little bit earlier is this idea of image and self-image and how Christiane's view of herself has really been informed by the reactions of how others view her, specifically her father and Louise. And I think this is something that I can certainly relate to because, you know, as someone that was born with a disability and physical differences, I wasn't always, you know, just automatically informed that there was something different or wrong with the way that I looked or the way that my body looked, any of that. It was something that was informed by other people's reactions uh, to me or comments that were made as I got a little bit older and could comprehend and kind of construct all of that together. Certainly, I felt really fortunate to grow up in a home where my mom, you know, never really emphasized, um, you know, being physically different and looking a lot different from, say, my sister and her. You know, she just said, yeah, you look different, but I look different from everyone else, and we all are unique, and that's just how you look, and that's okay. And the idea of having to hide or minimize scars is also something that is, I think, really part of a disability experience. And that we do, even those of us that are fairly comfortable at a certain point with our appearance, you do find yourself kind of slipping into these these things of, you know, uh, I'm going out on this date, you know, suddenly I am looking in my closet and being like, oh, maybe I should wear this really high neck top or, you know, whatever. 
So those ideas, even though we can be aware of them and say, oh, well, I should feel comfortable in this, we still find ourselves being impacted by the comments and the way that those have shaped our own image. And I think in this film, it's also, um, you know, underscored by the point that Christiane doesn't necessarily see herself. The mirrors have been uh, blacked out, but she says, you know, that she can still see her reflection. And I think that's, you know, she sees her reflection through the way that she's uh, treated and the reactions by those around her. And I think that's kind of, you know, uh, again, emphasized in the relationship with the animals. When she goes down uh, to see them, they don't react to her. She's very calm and they, you know, are very affectionate to her. And she, I think, relates a lot to them. Now, one thing I do want to hit on that I also find really interesting is this importance on, I guess, quote unquote, physical perfection and why that is the pursuit. Now, this isn't um, in no way to shame or disparage anyone who has cosmetic surgery, of course. I'll state that again. But there is this notion, I think, especially still within our society, that there's this pursuit of some kind of what we see as physical perfection. And that's, you know, really nothing but what current beauty standards happen to be in. We always have to keep in mind that those beauty standards do shift and change over time. That, you know, what's, uh, you know, seen as, quote unquote, a perfect look, a perfect body, uh, you know, any of that uh, looks a lot different today than it did in the past. And it's going to look a lot different in the future than it does today. And I think there's a lot of merit and good that can come from that and keeping that in mind. But um, this idea of the pursuit of physical perfection, I think, still is rooted in the this, I think, timeless idea, especially for women. Although, certainly, beauty standards and um, kind of societal emphasis on beauty impacts uh, individuals of all genders, sexes, all backgrounds. So I, I don't want to diminish that, but I think, you know, with women, it can be uh, particularly uh, reinforced in uh, a lot of different areas that maybe others won't necessarily encounter. And I think there's this underscored value placed on women based on their appearance because that has to be part of the package. And when you have a disability and it is a physical disability that, again, 
will impact your appearance, you have scars, whatever the case may be, you have a diminished value. And I find that really interesting in how that is embedded in this film, that the value of Christian is not as a person, but as a person who looks a certain way because that speaks to the success of her father. Now, he may have the intention and the thought that he's doing this because he wants her to not have scars and to live a quote-unquote normal life, but she could live a quote-unquote normal life with scars. And so um, it really does come down to this being more about him and not her as a person, her wants, her needs, her wishes, and her overall well-being. I think this is kind of symbolized in the mask that Christian wears. It's essentially a blank canvas. It's definitely kind of jarring to see at first, but it's almost an uncanny valley type appearance. But it's a blank canvas. And her father being a surgeon, her face is his canvas. So, um, I don't know. I found that something really interesting. I've only seen this film um, a very, very small handful of times in my life. And it, that was an idea that really kind of uh, stood out to me upon this watch was, you know, the mask being kind of this uh, blank slate and, you know, really being... Uh, his canvas of choice. Now, I do want to switch gears for just a second and talk about the mad scientist or mad doctor element of Dr. G. And I mentioned that at the top, this was something that they had to kind of work with when adapting the book because it could potentially uh, set off the German censors specifically. So they they had to tread, I think, quite lightly, where I think it's much more emphasized and um, kind of a, a standing point in the book. I haven't read the book, so I can't comment on that, but based on what um, I've kind of researched about the book, that is my understanding. And the fact that they said, you know, we have to make sure that we don't emphasize this element of Dr. G uh, would certainly speak to that. So I've mentioned in other episodes that medical trauma and really this evil scientist, evil doctor kind of trope character almost is something that I, I think speaks to a disability experience. I think I really hearkened on this in talking about the exorcist so going way way back in kind of the uh medical scenes with reagan the uh, you know how they seem so real and so visceral and so painful and even though it is not necessarily 
orchestrated by someone with evil intent, there's still that sense of trauma to the proceedings because there's not an aspect of consent. Now, when you add in the evil doctor uh, to the mix and you go a little bit more uh, Dr. Giggles, let's say, I think it speaks to an experience, especially as someone born with a disability who spent their childhood going to doctors and having a, a fear of doctors because you can't, you don't understand what's necessarily happening to you at these appointments. You don't know what to expect. They're not explaining it to you necessarily. They may try, but oftentimes it isn't clear, you know, okay, well, this is what you're going to have to do. This is the test that we're going to run. And, you know, this is going to be a little uncomfortable, but it's promise you it's not going to necessarily hurt. A lot of these really, uh, I guess, moments of explanation for kids can be overlooked and can result in trauma. And then when you have that evil element to it, it just, I think, speaks to the fear of doctors that comes apart with that. Um, we view them as evil, the ones that are causing pain, whether it's an intentional thing or not. I've never had a doctor that I think is intentionally, um, meant to cause me undue harm. Absolutely not. But as a kid, your mind doesn't really make that distinction. So all doctors can become evil fairly quickly. And with Christiane, she's kind of in that position of a, a child undergoing medical experiments and uh, the like that she really doesn't have the control, the knowledge, and the say over in her care. So I, I find that really an interesting piece. There's also, I think, we are led to believe at the beginning we see him, uh, Dr. G., uh, talking about the surgery, it's, you know, very innovative and kind of a, a new um, kind of groundbreaking procedure. And there's, I think, a built-in fear of the unknown when it comes to medicine, be it um, medications, um, procedures, anything like that. We've seen this play out, I think, in very uh, clear ways in the past couple of years or so with the pandemic and the vaccines. But I think that there's, you know, there's always that fear of, you know, the experimental aspects of medical science. And we see it played up as this horrific thing often in horror when in actuality it is experimentation and medical innovation that has been integral to advancements and allowing for folks with varied disabilities and illnesses and the whole gamut of things to live longer, healthier lives. And 
and massive improvements in quality of life along with that. So it is interesting that I think from a disability standpoint that, you know, we are seeing things that we are meant to fear, but are also in actuality very, I think, beneficial, not just for us, but for society at large. I don't know if that point is coming across as clear as I hope it is, but I do hope that the general point I'm making is coming through. Um, it's always something that I find really interesting with, you know, these kinds of stories and, and especially when you have a doctor like Dr. G. And as I mentioned, I think at the top, I, I can kind of appreciate how you're given, uh, you know, a more realistic kind of portrayal of that character with Dr. G. You know, the cartoonish nature that we often see with an evil scientist or evil doctor character is certainly toned down. And I think it's not that we find him sympathetic um, at all. I think we just understand more of his reasoning, his motives behind his actions. And that doesn't play into making the character more sympathetic at all. It's just a more robust understanding that makes for a much more dynamic and interesting character. I think it's all part of what makes this film so incredible and interesting. And with that, I think it might be time to wrap things up. Oh, it feels so good to be back. I hope I didn't sound out of practice or rusty at all. Uh, it feels good to be back and kind of back in the swing of things. So um really excited to, you know, be back on the schedule and be bringing you more episodes of Bodies of Horror at the regular cadence. I hope that you have enjoyed all the good and amazing offerings here at Anatomy of a Scream where I am always thankful that Bodies of Horror has its home. The amazing coverage of the new season of You and episodes of Love Hurts and Good for Her. Just lots of great stuff uh, here at Anatomy of the Scream. So I hope that that, um, that all treated you well. Now, prior to the break, I had mentioned that I wanted to try to do a better job at giving shout outs to maybe some other podcasts or things that I happen to be a part of guesting on things of that nature. And yeah, just because I wasn't here, um, I was elsewhere. I have been so fortunate to be um, kind of a regular guest over at the pod and the pendulum and they just wrapped up the coverage of a top tier horror franchise the purge did an episode on the purge franchise here what feels like eons ago it wasn't eons ago um but it was in kind of the first season of bodies of horror and 
I love that franchise so, 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 so much and was really excited to be able to talk about um, two of my favorite entries in the franchise, Election Year and The First Purge. So um, I'll link the pod and the pendulum in the show notes if that intrigues you. And also uh, just had an episode on Basket Case drop at Psychoanalysis. They have done um, kind of a, a theme around sibling rivalry, which has been so fun to listen to those episodes. And I had thrown out the idea of, uh, you know, oh, Basket Case would be a perfect uh, film in this series. And Mike over at Psychoanalysis said, you are absolutely right. And let's do it. So I am so, so thankful uh, to have been on that episode. And I'll link Psychoanalysis in the show notes as well, of course. I've, I think, talked about them and linked both Pod and the Pendulum and Psychoanalysis in the past two of my absolute, absolute, absolute favorites and must-listens as far as podcasts go. And uh, Mike has just been a dear, dear friend, and I feel just so fortunate that he he kind of lets me go on and rant and rave and ramble on about films, and, and he does such a great job at bringing really informed and interesting perspectives, and um, yeah, I've been on psychoanalysis in the past with him and co-host Laura and Jen, I know that they're currently on hiatus, so he's been, you know, reaching out to some of, uh, I guess, former guests and, and kind of folks in his circle to, to come on in and talk about them. So it has been uh, just so neat to do. So I'm going to link both of those podcasts if you're interested in giving them a listen. I absolutely love, 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 love them. So I... I can't recommend them enough. All right. Well, I think that will do it for, for plugs. I did it. And I'm going to try to do it consistently. So try to keep me on my on my toes with that one. And yeah. Until next time. Scream Pod Squad.